0: Let's begin some prayer. Lord, just as we've sung, speak, O Lord, by your word to us this morning. We pray that we would learn, Lord Jesus, more of your glories from the scriptures. And before we come to your word this morning, too, Lord, we want to lift up to you our own lives and the lives of those that we love, our friends who need healing in their bodies and in their souls. We thank you so much for how you provide grace in our lives to bring about the strength we need to face trials, the hope that you give us for the future, the peace that you work in us through trusting in you in the midst of trials, and to know your love deeply. These are the things we pray. We want to lift up to you a few that are listed in our prayer guide this week, especially Debbie Harris and and just the recent hospitalization. We praise you that she's home. We Praise you that the doctors are starting to figure out more and more of what's wrong with her, and we pray that you would heal her, bring her to full restoration, and pray that you would continue to give Tom and and Debbie the grace that they need to persevere. We give you praise for John Coburn's sister, Chris, and that she's home and that the surgery went well, that we pray that for the physical therapy, that it would continue to produce strength in her body. And, of course, we ask, ultimately, that faith in Christ would be hers. We pray for Mary Ann, Chicola, Pastor Tim's wife at the crossing, and just the devastating news that they received this week of the tumor coming back. And We pray for great wisdom for not only the doctors, but for Tim and Mary Ann, for the family, for comfort, for clarity on what options that they should pursue that would honor you, And we pray that you would uphold them by your grace. We give you thanks for your work in Lori's life and a couple surgeries coming up. We pray that you would give success in Lori Garrity's surgeries, give her the strength that she needs, the peace, the perseverance through all of these trials, that she'd be able to serve you as she so eagerly desires to do so. And I also want to lift up to you our friend, Kevin Marr, and his cancer journey, a very scary one. We pray that you would be with him and Marilyn and the family, that you'd provide healing. Lord, that is ultimately our prayer all the time, is that you would be and show yourself as a God of healing of both our bodies and our souls. And we also want to lift up to you this morning now those just on our own hearts and in the silence of our own place where we sit and worship this morning that we would lift up to you now um, the names and the concerns that we have. Lord God, you identified yourself as Yahweh Rapha, the God of healing, and we thank you that we can praise you that you are the one that heals our diseases and that forgives our sins, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray this morning, amen. You know, one famous passage, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we're at the passage where it's the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, it's a very interesting passage, but it brings to mind another passage of Scripture, and that's Hebrews 12, one that we know very well. And it simply says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Have you ever wondered what it means to consider him? That's the admonition from that passage. We read about Jesus' life and death. Consider him. Well, that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we look in Luke 22, verses 39 to 53, looking at Jesus in this passage. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So let's watch Jesus in this passage this morning, fight the good fight and consider him who was successful You know, Luke's story, as we read it, we know is very abbreviated because we we have the other story accounts in Matthew, Mark, and in John, all the parallels. We'll We'll interrupt Luke a little bit to show you the parallels that are there, but you'll notice Luke's story moves very quickly and is constantly contrasting Jesus' behavior with that of his disciples. Very stark, very simple And that's what we want to see in Luke's presentation, is to marvel at the resolve of our Lord Jesus Christ and imitate Him. That's our worship of Jesus. You see, the enemies of the Lord are going to be arriving within about an hour, and Jesus and His disciples make two very different choices that evening, which leads to very different actions and very different results. And so in the first half of our story this morning, the choice is clear in verses 39 to 46, between agonizing in prayer like Jesus or sleeping away your sorrows like the disciples. In the second half of our passage, in verses 47 to 53, the outcome then follows these choices. There's courageous faith displayed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and there's cowardly faithlessness displayed by His disciples. Now, the last couple Sundays we've been looking at Luke's accounting of the Passion narrative And we've seen his emphasis on the religious leaders, on Judas, on Satan, and how they're all moving together to secure the downfall of Jesus. It's a cosmic battle of the ages that's taking place. And the spiritual warfare is not just there, but it's also shown in the opposition that comes from the other disciples and from the world itself. Opposition is coming from everywhere to put Jesus to death. But we've been keeping our eye on Judas as we've been following the storyline in Luke. And in our passage today, we see the betrayal. But yet, even while we watch Judas, we're supposed to be paying much more close attention to our Lord Jesus Christ and marvel at the way He responds and the outcome for us. So first, let's observe the choice that's made. Observe Jesus agonizing in prayer while His disciples sleep away their sorrows. Our passage simply begins, He came out. And went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, there's Jesus' practice to pray in this place. So right after the Lord's Supper, that Passover, Jesus goes out to his habitual place of prayer. In an olive grove, in the Mount of Olives, probably near where, near where he's been lodging all that week, this final week. And often he would spend whole nights of prayer, perhaps even in this very garden. Well, tonight, this night, he decided to bring his disciples with him to pray along with them, his beloved companions, because it would be the last night that they would have together, and he wanted to spend it in prayer with his disciples. Well, Jesus knew that Judas would be arriving very shortly, in about an hour or so. And so he urges prayer on their part. Specifically, he says, pray that you do not enter into temptation because temptation is looming. And they are going to be the targets of the evil one and evil people. That's what he taught them earlier in the Lord's Prayer. In chapter 11, verse 4, lead us not into temptation. And we note his concern for his disciples this night when really he's the one that's going to be suffering most severely. But Jesus knows the truth about these kind of situations, evil spiritual forces opposing him, and so he would spend the time in serious prayer. In fact, later on, after the lesson was learned that night, our apostle Peter himself would write to the church in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He learned the lesson that evening. Well, then Jesus goes on to pray by himself. Our passage tells us he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now we know from integrating all the different gospel accounts that Jesus makes it to the garden. And at some point outside the gate, he leaves the eight disciples or so to wait for him. Perhaps they would signal if there was a problem that would arise. And then at some other point, he takes Peter, James, and John to another point in the garden, much closer to him, and tells them to stay and pray in a certain spot. And then he himself goes along farther by himself to pray in solitude. And he would pray three times and return to the group of three, three times, finding them asleep every single time. Now his prayer as Jesus prays, we read how he does that here. It's a humble submission to the will of God the Father, both in words and in his posture. You notice he's submissive right away, acknowledging the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And asks his petition, Lord, if, this may, if it may be your will, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But submits himself to the will of God. He's in agony. I mean, he, he knows, he's been praying throughout his whole life on this earth, your will be done. And Jesus knows that his cross is necessary for the accomplishment of the purposes of salvation. The cross is unavoidable. Ultimately, it would be his glory, though. But not long before this week, he prayed similarly in John 12. It's recorded with all of this weighing heavily on his mind. It says in John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This cup that Jesus is referring to... It's simply a common way of referring to God's wrath. The prophets spoke many ways about this many times. For example, in Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to its dregs. In Jeremiah the prophet, and part of his message that he was given in his ministry, the Lord God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup, of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending upon them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. So when he says, This cup, let this cup pass from me, he understands this is talking about all the physical pain that he will endure, as well as all of the pain in his soul and the infliction due because of the sins of the world laid upon him. The alienation from God the Father. That's the assigned cup of God against the sin of mankind. And in Jesus' case, on the cross, he would be the curse for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And God the Father answered Jesus' prayer immediately. He sent angels to strengthen Jesus. And he strengthened in his soul. He strengthened in resolve, in prayer, because of prayer, as an answer to his prayer. And so Jesus prayed even more earnestly It says, afterward, because intense trials in our lives require intense prayer. He exerted himself so much that he perspired profusely, so much so, that he bled. Sweats like drops of blood fell from him. It's a prayer of agony, and it lasted for about an hour. Well, Jesus doesn't sleep like a coward, like his disciples. But he moves forward then in faith and prayer, fully aware of what the future holds, and he finishes up his prayer and rises with resolve to gain victory at the cross. Matthew records in his gospel account, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Well, Jesus is ready to go, but his disciples aren't ready because they haven't prayed they decided to sleep in verses 45 to 46 we read and when he rose from prayer he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and he said to them why are you sleeping rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation so he wakes them up encourages them to pray even now although it's too late to pray so where's the prayerlessness going to lead we'll see very shortly what will happen because of their perilousness. The disciples, it says, were sleeping out of sorrow. They were sleeping out of grief. They were sleeping because they are exhausted. Well, that's a common human response. It's probably one that we all know very well ourselves, for we do the same thing. When we get overwhelmed by life and its trials and its troubles, we sleep on it. And sometimes we sleep on it simply to escape, and it can give us a false sense of confidence and readiness from sleep, but oftentimes that can be the problem. But what they needed most at that time was not sleep, but spiritual readiness from time and prayer. And as it's recorded in Mark's gospel, it says, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, it's certainly true that sometimes sleep is what we need, no doubt. I mean, God designed us that way to be constantly dependent upon him on a daily basis. And sometimes that is the spiritual thing to do, is to simply rest in God by resting. But not that night, not in that time. It was a time sometimes, as we know, that problems require more prayer, not more sleep. And so Jesus prays and he's strengthened. His disciples decide not to pray And we see their weakness exposed. And we should and we must know our own need to pray for spiritual strength and resolve. It's not going to come by simply sleeping. Jesus, the divine Messiah, knows that he needs strength. The disciples think they're strong enough already in our story. In his humanity, Jesus is persevering as an example for us. Prayer prepares us to do God's will with all of our being. And if Jesus needed it, Well, so do we. And so in his disciples, humanity and prayerlessness, they're unprepared to do God's will. They lost the skirmish with the flesh to pray, and it's going to show up in the battles to come that night. So the choice was made clear, and Luke puts it boldly before us, that Jesus agonized in prayer while his disciples slept away their sorrows. One's an easy course of action, and the other is much more difficult. But Jesus models praying in agony while his disciples choose to sleep in sorrow. He rose with courage to face the fight while they found themselves falling before their own temptations. You know, the section opens and closes the same way. Did you notice that? In verse 40 and in verse 46, the exact same words. Take a look at that. Jesus says in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Look down at verse 46. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The implied promise, of course, is that if you pray, God is going to respond. And he's going to strengthen you according to your need. I mean, this is how it works. We know this. It works this way because... Prayer prepares us for whatever's coming because we're in communion with God, we're in fellowship with God, we're talking with God, and he gives perspective. And through prayer and in prayer, perspective comes into our minds and in our hearts that was not there before. That's one way in which it works. Prayer also prepares us by this Holy Spirit and the angels that the Lord sends to minister to provide a confidence in our soul and a courage that wasn't there before we prayed. A confidence and a courage that if we only relied upon our human reasoning and trying to figure out the details of life, wouldn't be there. And if it were, we would know it's really pretty weak. But you see, prayer prepares us for these things and it's the hard work of the Christian, it's the hard work of the church and it's always gonna be a struggle against our flesh. But when we look at this passage, We should be marveling at our Lord Jesus and the strength and the resolve and the agony in His prayer and the courage then that He leaves His time in prayer with His Father to face what would be before Him. He is our example. Well, next we observe the outcome. Courageous faith by Jesus, as we've talked about, because He's the one that prayed. And then we see all this cowardly faithlessness that comes from His disciples. But first, Judas betrays Jesus in verse 47 and 48. It says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So he's still speaking to his disciples, it appears, about praying, talking to them about what prayer is. Is about and why they should have been and then the multitude arrives led by Judas the betrayer Judas knew the place because he'd been there before most likely praying with the group praying with Jesus at other times but this time he brings the chief priests the temple police the elders and Roman soldiers as if they're all armed for a fight and Judas would identify Jesus by greeting him first so they could arrest him quickly in the night, and he couldn't escape. Well, Jesus challenges Judas regarding his supposed friendship, his supposed love and respect. He didn't let Judas just get away with the kiss, but he called him out. He said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This sign of love is now a sign of a most cruel betrayal. And also there would be a resistance of sorts that the Gospel of John records that takes place either right before the kiss of Judas or right after it that demonstrates who really holds the power. Because it seems like the Roman government and the religious leaders hold all the power. But in John 18, we read about what takes place this night as well. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Jesus is the one who holds the power over even his own death. We've seen Jesus' strong faith in the story, but now the disciples act faithlessly in verse 49 and 51. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So you remember earlier in verses 36 to 38 that Jesus insisted that they get a sword. And that was the metaphor for spiritual readiness. But they didn't get the metaphor. They're pretty dull people, okay, at this point. They weren't spiritually alert. So we read in verse 36, he said to them, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So obviously, the disciples in this situation, with this crowd coming after Jesus, wonder if this is the time to use them. And so not waiting for an answer from Jesus or hearing none, as it's recorded in John 18, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The name of the servant was Malchus. Now, a lot has been made out of a theory that Peter was just a bad aim. Oh, it's humorous, but uh, probably not that convincing. But Peter slices off his right ear. Um, Maybe he was a member of the temple police even. But it might have been a purposeful insult to just simply do that, to cut his ear off. Or maybe, yeah, it was a general strike in the direction and that was the result. Either way, though, he would have expected a little more help from his friends, from Jesus, maybe from angelic beings. And it's obvious to us as the readers that this is exactly what Jesus was warning about when he said you should be praying and not sleeping. This is the failure. This is the temptation that overtook them. They were relying, particularly Peter, on human insight and ingenuity and problem-solving, and they were not observing with faith. And so Jesus immediately responded, as it's recorded in John 18, put your sword into its sheath shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus rebukes his disciples saying, stop it, basically. Matthew 26, it's recorded, put its sword back into its place. For all who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, the sword is not the way and it's really interesting at this point in church history to be able to look back at least on what you know even you may know of what's happened throughout the history of the church this has been a serious misunderstanding since the very beginning to think that the kingdom of god is going to come by means of a sword well, Jesus then shows everybody there who he really is. He's not the revolutionary to be afraid of. He's the compassionate healer. And he heals the man. He even heals his enemy, anticipating his own work on the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, that for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. And we read even this passage, and we know where the storyline is going, and we read a section like Romans 5, and the question should be obvious, have you been reconciled to God? Being transitioned from an enemy to a friend. By your faith in Jesus and what he would do on that cross. And bear the cup of the wrath of God for your sin in your place. So Jesus then addresses the situation very courageously at the end in verse 52 and 56. He said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay your hands on me, but this... Your hour, the power of darkness. Just like he didn't let Judas get away with it, he didn't let them get away with it either. This armed delegation from the Sanhedrin, the religious council. He critiques them for their battle array to come out and arrest him as though he were some kind of a dangerous revolutionary, a criminal, or some kind of a bandit. bandit. So there they are. They're cowards. Marching in false strength. He's the one that's filled with the courage of the Almighty. Verse 53 speaks about the sovereignty of God and all of this. And Luke's rendition is not so much to emphasize their cowardly actions, but it's pretty clear they're arresting him in private at night rather than in public and in the daytime. Because they're really just a bunch of cowards. Because they know who Jesus really is and what the people are would really do. Now is the appointed, though, time for darkness, Satan's hour, those that are conspiring along with him. That includes Judas and all these men. And again in Luke, we're supposed to observe this cosmic confrontation that's going on in God's plan. The outcome from prayer or prayerlessness as we've been following Jesus and the disciples are pretty obvious that night. And they're tied together because Jesus was talking to them about prayer right when all of this took place. Jesus acts faithfully. His disciples act faithlessly. Jesus is arrested. And his apparent disciples, who said they were so strong, they all fled, leaving him alone. Matthew and Mark make it abundantly clear. So we need to know that this, too, was the outcome of their failure to pray was to actually abandon Jesus in the hour of his arrest. Prayer makes a huge difference, simply put. So make sure to give priority to prayer in your life. Now, it's also important to realize at this point, too, that, you know, the disciples, they would eventually learn to pray. They would eventually act consistently. They would eventually be bold and, have great faith. For example, we learn right after the Jesus you know, ascension and the giving of the spirit to the church that we see, for example, in Acts chapter 4, how they suffer for the gospel. They get imprisoned in. And for example, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John join with the whole church and they pray for more of the same boldness and power, like Jesus was doing that night, and for endurance. And it's recorded in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And then you continue to read the story, and the persecutions continued to increase. So it's pretty obvious in our passage this morning that the disciples and Jesus made very different choices that night about prayer, which led to very different actions on their part when confronted with temptation. And then led to very different results in their life. The choice was between agonizing in prayer and sleeping over sorrow. And the outcome would be either having courageous faith or being cowardly. So we marveled this morning at our Lord Jesus and his prayer. We should be asking when we look at the storyline of what Jesus is talking about. When we look at Jesus. What is our courage level when we face opposition and our enemies? Whether they're people. Whether they're temptations that come from ourselves, whether they come from the devil. What is our courage level? And what is our faith level in dealing with the pressures that come into our lives? Now, how do you typically respond to these types of things in your life? To crisis and opposition and persecution and temptation? Have you been sleeping when you should have been praying? Perhaps. But you know, the good news is, is that you can start praying anytime. And as soon as you start praying, God answers your prayer. You don't have to bemoan the fact that you weren't praying, but you were sleeping. It's a serious question when we ask one another. It's not a trite one when we say, have you prayed about it? We really do mean that. Have you been praying? Do you continue to pray until you get to the point where you have courage from God to face the situation directly? It doesn't mean you have all the answers. You know how it's going to come out. But you have the courage from God that you can rise and go forward, that it's time? Do you continue to pray until you feel like you can move forward in God's strength and not just your own ingenuity or thoughts? You know, prayer is not always a time of sweet, simple time with the Lord. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's also a time for earnestness and eagerness over certain requests. Sometimes it's a time of joy and worship and glory in His presence. Sometimes prayer is a time of comfort in the midst of sorrow, but sometimes prayer is simply just hard work, agonizing, even physical, like we saw in Jesus, example. You know, our Christian convictions and our stated courage can fail us in the face of fear of temptation. Let me just look at Peter. He was very bold in his assertions, probably bolder than most of us. But he failed because he didn't pray. And if we overrate ourselves or think that we're stronger than than we really are, think that we can just sort of sleep on it and it's going to be solved, it doesn't always work that way. So how are we as Christians supposed to deal with failure in our lives? and Whether they're minor failures or major ones or uncharacteristic ones even in our life. And perhaps some of us are there this morning, that's who we are and we're in this position as I mentioned, we can begin praying right away and add it to our life and our day and our morning and our evening. Remember, you know, remorse just adds to the failure. I hope you realize that. To being remorseful over not praying enough, that doesn't change anything. And that's not giving the glory to Jesus that he deserves because we're supposed to go to him for the strength to do what we are supposed to do. And he gets the glory when we do that. And so the proper response is simply to repent and receive grace from this one Jesus who died for you and rose again. And then he'll give you strength. He's the crucified and risen one. He, his whole purpose in our life, for our lives, is that we would be strong in him. That we would struggle valiantly like he did to the very end. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it's recorded... draw near. We can draw near with confidence that God is going to give us what we need. You know, I want to leave with these words from, or end with these words from Peter himself since he plays so prominently in our story this morning, what took place that night. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and following, he wrote this after having lived it and having lived through this first experience with our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How wonderful today that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as God's people.